Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, everything has a history, something that's often been said on this podcast. Does that include emotions? And if we could trace emotions in history, if we could find emotions within the archival record, would it be going too far to say that once there was an emotion that corresponded with a set of ethical rules for living in early modern society, and that by understanding those ethical rules and by understanding how that played out, we could learn something more about early modern society that we've never really fully understood? Well, yes, yes, and yes, says my guest, Katie Barkley. She's Associate Professor at the University of Adelaide in Australia and Deputy Director of the ARC Center of Excellence in the History of Emotions. She's author of Caritas, Neighborly Love and the Early Modern Self, which is the subject of our conversation today. Katie Barkley, welcome to Historically Thinking. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, um, Caritas, love, uh, as, just give us a quick thumbnail generic theological concept, but then also I'm very uh, your thumbnail definition of it as a sociological reality. Yeah, so caritas in, in the religious tradition is um, the act of grace of God on, on the person that then is, comes out from them as love to the other. And so it takes a love that we would imagine uh, as a kind of human thing and gives it a sort of spiritual dimension. It's an act of grace. Um, and because it's an act of grace, it therefore uh, it heightens the Christian community and brings us closer to God and, and, and sort of makes our souls purer and, and kind of acts in that sort of salvic, salvific mode to make us uh, closer to God and so therefore closer to salvation. But for early modern uh, Christians, uh, actually across Europe, it's a very common idea uh, across for both Protestants and Catholics and lots of different sects. They, they hold caritas as, as a shared value. And um, they see it as a kind of way of living. And so it's not just about uh, the an idea of love that's a sort of spiritual concept but it's about your behavior it's about being moral and chaste it's about being peaceful and not angry it's about how you speak it's about not gossiping um it's a kind of this whole sort of way of doing your life uh, that kind of shapes your behavior but it's also a feeling and that's really important um i think we often think of a moral code as something we do or something we think about but they saw love as this kind of very passionate feeling and some of the the thinkers like you know john calvin and the the the, the, the feel Theologians who are always very kind of out there, they're like, you should love your brother in the faith as strongly as you love your wife. You know, it's got to be. God, that sounds so passionate. good in a Scottish accent. It really does sound much <laughs> much more persuasive. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I should probably do it in a, a German accent, but yes. <laughs> well, no, 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 but French, French, but yes, go on. Um, yeah. But yes, the, the theologians, you know they are really trying to get people to commit to this in a big way and to see it as a big feeling. And I think in practice, not everybody loves their brother, <laughs> i.e. their neighbour, with quite so much passion. But I think they do absolutely see it as a moral value. And when you look at the records from the period, they use words like affection and love and friendship all the time to talk about ordinary relationships, including, say, like contract, right? You, you want to make a contract with somebody and they will say, I'm doing this out of love, I'm doing this out of friendship for the affection that I have for this person we are contracting. So this is one of those things that I mean I, I've seen those things in 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 documents too, 
and it's like um it's like you know you read a lot of you've read a lot of wills i've read a lot of wills mm -hmm. and you see that sort of sometimes there's a testimony of faith at the beginning at the, or and at the end and you and then some some of us say yeah 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 whatever 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 but you're like take that seriously uh, yes. Maybe not as a, a statement of their emotional interior life, whatever, but as what they think is expected of them, we should be taking that seriously. Yeah, and as a political commitment in that sense. So even if they don't literally feel it at that moment, they recognize that they should feel it and it's an important feeling and it should be recognized. And so they put it into their paperwork. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's interesting because then all of a sudden there's all sorts of stuff that people like to look over that all of a sudden it becomes important. If we if we yes. actually start looking at it again, um, so what's the let's a very short pricey thumbnail sketch. What's the thumbnail version of your argument in this book, which is is a short book, but a very dense book. Yeah, that's <laughs> one way of putting it. Um, so the, the the main argument is that caritas, this emotional ethic, is, is how I describe it, is is a fundamental framework or sensibility way of thinking about the world um, that shapes how people behave towards each other in daily life. And so people are not always uh, they're not always at their best behavior. They're not always good Christians, but they when they they don't behave well, they interpret that behavior against this moral framework. And so I would argue that you have to take it seriously as a sort of a guiding kind of code for how people behave and if we do that it helps us understand a whole lot of behaviors that early modern people do that don't always seem obvious to us and it kind of brings I guess a kind of uh, an expl explanation to the early modern psyche I guess in some ways. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, so, that's so nicely and neatly put. Um, so you immediately run into um, a very involved, uh, I try to avoid using words like this in this podcast, discourse over the self in early modern society. And this is like my, the best course I ever took as an undergraduate was visions of the self, which began with, we, we read autobiographies and talked about this. So this is, you're, you're scratching someplace where, you know, deep within me when you talk about this, but there's, there's a, I mean, people who are non-specialists probably don't understand the, not the um, sheer weight of trees that have been killed <laughs> in pursuing arguments over the self in early modern society. So let me give you an impossible task, a sort of, you know, viva task. Describe the, uh, the, 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 the narrative, the, the arguments over the self in early modern society. Go. <laughs> okay. Um, so this, yes, is schematic. But um, I would say that the major debate is around how people think of themselves as individuals or as part of the group and um and today we think of ourselves as being very individual that's or that's what is suggested um and when we look back at the past people uh, suggest the, the language that they use and the way they think about themselves suggests that they often have a much stronger sense of themselves as part of a group and that's how they think about themselves so they think about themselves and in, in the hierarchy of of, of of, of people from the king at the top to them at the bottom they recognize their place and that they shouldn't move beyond that but also in terms of things like family family identity and doing things that are for the good of the family are more important than doing things for the good of yourself you know your priorities are towards uh, other people and not necessarily for your own self-interest um, and 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 so one of the big debates is is that true um because we can always find uh, 
early modern and medieval people who actually seem to have quite a lot of self-interest and we have people who step outside of those norms about sitting in their place in society and, and what does that mean and so I guess that's the big debate is when we look back and how do we think about how people think about themselves in relation to other people and I think that Caritas um, helps explain that because if we love people the idea is that you would want to give up something of yourself to the other and towards the greater good um, but also because Caritas is a relationship with God and that's personal in Christianity you also do have to have an individual self because your moral soul is your own and so you have to kind of also work to I guess uh, enable your own salvation and that gives people a sense of themselves as separate from the group and, and, and perhaps also I was thinking as I read the book there's um you know there's a very strange um Calvinist way of interrogating the soul which I don't think Lutherans or Anglicans share um, where they say there's like there's an interlocutor you're interlock you're addressing the soul oh soul is it well with you you know you find New England Puritans like taking a walk and talking to their soul um, mm. in which they're engaged in this very strange private conversation with themselves um, in a way which is modern but certainly seems different to me um, mm -hmm. so that they are in an intensely communal, participation in their society but at the same time they're in a deeply individualistic uh deeply individualistic in a way that Tocqueville would recognize uh 200 years later yeah um, I think as well that oh sorry no go ahead I, I, I think I think as well that um there, there's a kind of sense of which I guess it's a bit like thinking about whether you're a good and moral person. I think we do that too. I think they're doing it in a different context. So the things that make them good and moral are different. But I think this is why Caritas works really well as an emotional ethic, because the, it's very much about this, about how you think as well. It's about not having lewd thoughts and uh, not looking at your neighbor's wife and coveting them. There's a sense of which that they are trying to discipline themselves in every dimension from the most interior kind of thought that you might have to their, how you walk and talk and present yourself to, to the other, how you behave uh, in your actions. And so they, right. they kind of get this discipline that happens at all levels, right? So you hear this um, this thing, this modern, um, this modern cliche that character is what you are when no one's looking at you. But of yeah. course, that's not what character is in the early modern world at all. Characters, everyone's looking at you, as you make clear. I mean, Scotland, in Scotland is the most urbanized place in Europe, which is interesting to think about. I mean, you are always in view of other people. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, within this ethic of Caritas, you know yourself, there's an emotional, you do have an emotional life in which you are, are uh, hopefully you should be monitoring yourself and understanding mm -hmm. yourself, even though it's very hard to be private in this mm -hmm. society. Yeah. And I think as well, the uh, and this is actually something you see in Adam Smith, um, which I think he takes from this tradition, um, mm. is that is that sense that the, what your neighbours do for you is they act to remind you of what is moral and good. And so mm. when you think about and judge your moral behaviour and think about your interior self, the, the, the how you choose to decide whether you, you are being moral and good is, is not based on your own personal kind of inspiration, or it shouldn't be. It's actually about the fact your neighbours are judging you and are you conforming to to these kind of social norms around good behavior and so you're kind of using them as a guide i think to think about yeah. um whether yeah whether you're righteous yeah that's so it's so that's so 18th century it's uh, yeah, jasper it's adam smith but you you convinced me this is something that they are as it were 
theory. They've they've seen it work in practice. Now they're trying to make it work in theory. Um, yeah. they, 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 there's already an existing body of, 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 of feeling that they are now mm-hmm. trying to put into thought. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But that, yeah. that, that, maybe that's another book for you. <laughs> when you take, you go forward to Smith and Shaftesbury. Right? Now we've, we've suggested already that, uh, I've, I've mentioned this and then you've, you, you, let the cat out of the bag. I'm Smith at Scotland. Scotland is your focus. Now, other than your accent, uh, other than your natural sort of, um, what standort for Heimnis? Some, there's a German word for it. Um, why choose Scotland as the arena for studying the interplay of caritas? It's, it's a great question. I guess I, I was, before I wrote this book, this is not my first book, I was a Scottish historian, so this was my natural kind of place where I work and think. Um, and I and the reason these questions came up for me was because I was looking through uh, the court records and this language is everywhere, right? And I was just, it really struck me and I thought, we need to talk about why people talk about love and affection and friendship and all these words over and over again. Um, and, and But it's a great place to do it because we have those records and the 18th century court records in particular are beautifully detailed. We have um, depositions. So in, in Scotland, before you go to trial um, for a crime or even actually for a civil case, they send out uh, and get depositions for people. So what we actually have in the in the record is not what went on in the courtroom. Um, if we have that, it's because it was in a newspaper. Um, but it's actually we have people... Um, have went round and taken testimonies from all these witnesses and then they've been compiled in a file and some of these have survived for us hundreds of years later. And and that's a, 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 I wouldn't say it's a unique record, you get that in other countries, but it's a particularly rich record and we have lots of uh, lovely insights uh, into how people think about their world. And I think that's one of the things that was important to me as well uh, is that I, like with any court case, you might say that the truth is kind of is never quite knowable, um, but the, to me it was more about their intentionality and how they described these things. That they chose to use that language, that they framed the situations that they saw in those ways, and to me that that was perhaps just as important uh, in thinking about uh, how they understood themselves in the world as whether it was literally that what ha- you know that happened at that moment in time. It was, it was how they chose to think about it. So Scotland is a strange place uh, in the 18th century. Um, has a, I mean, in, in really good ways. It has an extraordinarily high literacy rate. Yeah, um, as you point out, it has a much higher urbanization rate than we realize. Um, we're all thinking of people playing bagpipes on top of uh, in the Glen or whatever. No, no, no. They're all moving to Dundee and Perth and and Glasgow, of course, and and even Edinburgh. Um, their towns are are growing and growing and growing. Um, so it's unusual in, in many ways. Um, vibrant commercial economy um, where uh, there hadn't been one before. Um, it's becoming a lot more like Venice than even Venice is at the time. Um, uh, so why, how can we extrapolate from Scotland to other places in early modern Europe? Can we do that? I mean, but you are, you are making certain claims that this very, it's even, I was going to say it's a specific, there's, well, it's not completely true, but it's, it's Protestant. Um, mm-hmm. it's a, and for the most part, it's a certain type of Protestantism. Um, okay, there are Catholic nobles, yeah, sure, but still, how can we extrapolate from Scotland to the rest of Europe to the America? How is this possible? 
I think it's because Christianity is like so. Yes, there are differences between the different denominations and sects and Christianity between what they believe. But actually, one thing they all do believe is that you know God is love and that we should love our neighbours. It's one of the Ten Commandments. We share that moral code. Um, and so, and and I went away and I did my reading for other places, and nobody has uh, quite framed the Caritas uh, kind of conversation in this way before. But people do talk like there's lots of books on peacemaking, for example, and peacemaking is a core value, and it's a thing that you should do in your life according to these rules. Um, and there are books around you know social control and, be and behavior, and um, actually love appears in those books a lot more than I think historians notice. And and so I went and read that literature and thought this is also happening elsewhere. Um, I I think to me it seems that they are sharing that same moral code. What I would say you're right like. No country is identical, and and also within religions, there are they put different emphases on different things, and I think that that's that's where the the field to go next if people want to take up these ideas is to go well, okay, so this is how Caritas is operating in Scotland. Is it working the same way in Germany or or Spain? Because they are definitely sharing that moral framework and that language, and and there's lots of um, I've recently done a, a source book on the history of emotions, and and I, I was a European, so I've got sources from all over Europe, and I can tell you the word love is there. A lot right so, um, <laughs> so so it's in the sources it's definitely there um but we i do think that the the the, the nice work to, the places to go next is to go well do they imagine uh, their neighborly relations in quite that way in a small village in spain uh, or do they imagine it in this institution to operate in that kind of way and how do they where do they put the emphasis and how does that change and how does context context matter yeah. to that but i would expect that we would see some of the, the larger moral value to be shared now you've you've already answered this question that I, I want to ask, which seemed obvious before I began. But um, this is very much um, a bottom-up history. This is not you're not looking at M. Smith, you're not looking at the elites, you're not looking at a journal of s some young woman who's going to a wedding or something like that, or who's you know, no, this is court records. So I, I guess could you is there anything else to say about how can you? tease out um, what seems to us a complex interior world of emotions. How does that appear in court records? Oh, I think that is uh, about the depositions, actually, that, and but also the way they what they describe. So depositions are personal testimony, uh, and and usually they are witnessing. So people come and say, "Well, I saw this happen," or "I heard this happen," or, um, and that's actually a really interesting thing that I thought that. Um, they don't talk a lot about their interior life in these kind of records, almost intentionally. You almost never see somebody going, Jimmy was really angry and then he <laughs> did this. Yeah, They yeah, say, yeah. Jimmy did these things um, and from that we extrapolate that he is angry. right? Um, <laughs> and I, th I, think, I think that's the nature of the court record because you, you're not allowed to, you can't imagine what people think in their own heads. right? Um, so that's something about how the record makes that description. But I think it's also quite a useful way to think about how they observe the world and where uh, we get this kind of insight into how they are interpreting people's actual behaviours and not their interior thoughts. And so it's kind of telling us about how in that world people communicate with each other, read each other's bodies, read each other's behaviours, and then put it into a kind of explanatory framework that they all share about how we should judge it and whether it's good or bad or loving or unloving. Um, and from that, we get that kind of, I think, the sensibility of, of, of that culture, I guess. Mm -hmm. Now you've already touched on this, but but um, how do Scottish ministers, in particular, in this period, how are they teaching caritas to their congregations? I mean, what are they saying about it? Though they like it's 
literally in the catechism, I guess. <laughs> so, um, so the Scottish, uh, especially Scottish preaching, is very famous for its sermons. So, so, uh, and they are very encouraging of going to church. If you don't go to church often enough, the elders will come around and chase you. So, so people, these are, I guess, people do have a lot of access to religious teaching, especially at the start of the century, and perhaps declines uh, towards the end. Um, but they they learn it um, through sermons and scripture and reading the Bible. But they have they they have a catechism. Most uh, Christian denominations have their own catechism, which lays out what a moral life should look like. It's often done as a question and answer, so that you can uh, to allow you to memorize it. And so from when you're a small child, you're kind of taught to memorize these these values and beliefs. And then you later might be asked that question, and you should be able to recite the part of the catechism that shows that you you have your Christian values. And so I kind of think that um, that's how they are they are taught it in a very explicit way. But I also think this is just a socialization process. A lot of these behaviours just become natural and normal. It's what you, how you teach your children, um, and they grow up within that culture. And I think that's what we see at the end of the century when people don't go to church quite as much because you have massive urbanisation and, and the church doesn't have quite so much control over forcing people into the building. Um, but th- these values are just so embedded in how people think about the world that it, it doesn't need to be taught so explicitly because it's, it's taught at home and it's taught in the way people behave and what they think is normal and how you should treat uh, each other. So um, children, uh, do we have, do you have a read on how children are socialized into this other than through catechism? Um, do we have a read on how Scots teach their children, discipline their children? I mean, is this a, a how do they do that other than just you know, lots of spankings, whippings, whatever. Um, what do they tell them? I, I guess, well, I don't know that they whip them that much either. No, no, I mean, I don't know that they do. That's, <laughs> a, that's, our, that's, our, yeah. that's our idea. That's good, it, yeah. it's, not, it's not, it's probably wrong. Yeah, so I think they literally do it by being loving towards one another. And so, um, and they display that love to their children and to each other. And so children observe that behavior. Um, but Scottish people actually, like they love children, but they're very concerned uh, about how children are treated and that there shouldn't be any cruelty. And they and because these are kind of neighbourly communities, so lots of people keep an eye on children. So, so the children are all like playing in the streets. It's kind of that kind of culture. Um, children perhaps have more freedoms than we sometimes think about. But but on the other hand, they also have like a hundred people looking out their windows, keeping an eye on things. And so they're, they're, the sense of which they are part of that community. And so they're watching adult behaviours and they're observing it, but they're also being treated kindly. And on the occasions when people treat them badly, then other people interfere, and that's really interesting. So I have one of the examples in my book. You find that in the records. Yeah. So one of the examples in my book, it came from a defamation case. So um, a a, a guy swore at a woman and called her a whore, and she swore at him and called him a bastard. And it was all, you know, it was all very kind of offensive, and they took a defamation case. But what came out in the court record was that the child had been playing in his field, and he was angry at the child. I think maybe he let the horse out or something kind of relatively trivial and um, and so he beat up the child and the woman was so angry she came out and called him all these names and interfered in this process and then he called her all these names back and that was when that's mm-hmm. how the fight started but what we got behind that story was 
a woman incredibly angry at a man for his bad treatment of a child. Uh, and, that, and that suggests something of the care. And she wasn't his mother. This was not a relative. This was a, a woman walking past who thought that this man was uh, being cruel to a child and intervened. And we get these stories over and over again. That sometimes the reason that these stories come to court aren't about the children, but they are, they're just kind of incidentally there in the record. But we suddenly learn that these are people who are watching out for children, who have expectations around violence, especially, um, which they disapprove of. There's a big emphasis, not just uh, in Scotland, there's a big emphasis in a lot of 18th century child socialisation texts about not hitting children too much. They think mm-hmm, it's a bad mm-hmm. idea. So, mm-hmm. so there's a very, sense very that... Very contrary think, to the, the sort of the stereotype that I just gave. Um, exactly, yes. It, yeah. Um, but even if you read like even like the, the fear, like Rousseau and all those kind of thinkers are also arguing that, right? So this is mm-hmm. something happening at all social levels. So there, so I think children are learning to, how to love because they are being loved themselves and they are witnessing how to do good neighbourly behaviour by observing others, being loving, and then being loving and getting into fights, which is possibly contradictory, but nonetheless. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I, I'm also curious. I mean, one of the, the, the things about the, the, the concept of the self in early modern society, it's definitely the male self. Um, it's uh, and definitely in a male society. Uh, or male-centered society. So I, I'm very curious, um, you know, how does Caritas appear, uh, how do neighbors interfere or do they in uh, abuse of a hus- of a wife by a husband? Yeah, I mean, and that's, uh, I think, a lot harder because the, the patriarchal family is such a, a significant unit within the society and also within this model of love because God has ordained man to be head of his household and he is responsible for certain forms of both love and discipline of maintaining that orderly household. Um, and so I, you do still see this kind of willing to, like, neighbours are observing this stuff and we know this because if something goes wrong they all come out of the woodwork and they can give you a hundred details about everything that happened, right? Mm -hmm. So they're definitely watching. What they're trying to judge, I think, is when to step in and I think that's much harder. And also who should step in. So often if they think a a husband is being too violent to his wife, um, the kinds of people who step in, sometimes it will be the women in the community, but sometimes they'll go and get her father and bring him and get him to step in. And so there's a sense of which the, they don't want to interfere in this kind of patriarchal social order, but maybe the father can because he has different kinds of authority uh, in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, it's a, it is a real tension of, I guess, of when they, when they are willing to put a boundary and that tends to be interfering in uh, those kind of order or disorderly in this case, but orderly households, a sense that that is a boundary that shouldn't be crossed. And yet in public spaces, for example, um, they will. And that's why uh, lots of women will run outside if they're being badly beaten, because there's something about being in a public space that opens it up to community and to community interference. But once you're home and closed doors, people are less willing to break that threshold, I think. Do you you have any, I mean, I've run across and, and other people have too but just but randomly when you look in a sort of a court record in virginia or new jersey or something like that you'll sometimes find vigilante violence against a violent husband hmm. um uh basically and it, it's basically a social disciplining of someone who's considered out of bounds which i never thought about this is a them seeing this as a violation of caritas but of course that is the sort of necessary link that that makes sense of the uh, otherwise it's just random you know why mm. choose this guy in this way at this time do you find anything like that in scotland or is that just a sort of a colonial thing yeah i think 
I definitely think you probably could. I'm trying to think of a known example. What they do have uh, more obviously, and definitely this happens, is they get the church involved. So if people mm, are concerned yeah. about a level of violence in a family in their community, the elders come. So in the Kirk session, so the Kirk is the Scottish church, and they have a, their disciplinary sessions, which they keep minutes, which is quite helpful. Mm. <laughs> what you see in there is uh, often violent spouses uh, are brought, and they and they try to peacemake between them and remind them that peacefulness is a very important value. Um, and oh, and make them recite their catechism, and um, and they really do it. That that isn't just a joke. They actually do that. And but there's these, these kind of I guess processes where people are willing to interfere and to try to peacekeep. And usually that's done through through the church. Or if there's not a church, a minister nearby, then sometimes a, a, like a a leap, like a landlord, like mm-hmm. a land person. <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 <laughs> so that's an interesting difference. It's a big difference between say the Delaware Valley, Scotland, and Virginia. Um, Delaware Valley, there's mo- it's a plural, it's a plurality. There's lots of different church bodies, and there's mm-hmm. there might be I, 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 someone's gonna have to run the data on this eventually with the big data sets to figure out if there's more vigilante violence in a pluralistic society like in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, in Virginia, church warden, which is a relatively minor position amongst Anglicans in England, and I think also Episcopalians in Scotland, is held by rather powerful planters. And they will exercise church discipline as church warden over erring members of the community, uh, but mm-hmm. in a way, in a way that you can in Virginia because there's only one church. You know, it's it's a mm-hmm. it's an esta- there's a church establishment here, and as as mm-hmm. opposed to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, um, mm-hmm. it's more like Scotland. Anyway, that's uh, back to the, back to the, this. Um, what we've discussing people who violate the ethic of caritas. Um, there are many other examples, uh, I guess prostitutes, um, people who've committed adultery. Um, they've uh, fractured the relationship of the community. Um, what are, uh, how is that fracturing, other than saying that they, how is that fracturing described and how is it possible for people to be reintegrated into the ethic of Caritas? So I guess um, forgiveness is a very important value. Um, so, but also so is repentance and humiliation. And so, and the, they need the sinner to recognise they did something wrong, and then the community can forgive them and then reintegrate them. Um, and in practice, uh, they do that through a set of rituals, and usually that involves a period of shunning somebody who has behaved badly. In some cases, they leave the community for a time before they come back. And um, but once they come back, the community often reintegrates them. I wouldn't say perfectly or you know, with no friction whatsoever, but they, they do seem to make a concerted effort. And we also see this in quite, quite subtle ways. Um, so when people do behave badly and people gossip about them, um, and this, I would like to say this is very much a, a court record response, um, they'll say, well, I said, you should forgive them and show love to them. <laughs> and you go, yes, I very much believe that that's what you said to that bit of gossip. But, um, but nonetheless, in the context of a court deposition, they knew that gossiping about your neighbour's, you know, sexual immorality it was not the uh, the proper thing to kind of the character you wanted to give to the court so you you, you kind of said no no we were being loving and forgiving but absolutely we definitely have these kind of rituals of, of, of shunning and um and and if you um you should if you commit sin you should go to the court sessions and confess it and then they can decide what to do um they don't automatically go straight to humiliation in front of the congregation if mm. if it's not a well-known sin it's something small um and that can even involve sexual immorality if there's no pregnancy involved um 
they do allow you to do certain forms of penance in private and then you you go on with your life and that's because they think that scandal was bad for the morality of the community um and so they don't think that you should advertise sin because it, well, it might give people ideas but i think that they see that as something that is disruptive so if they can bring you back into order in quiet ways they will do that pregnancy is a complete problem though because it's not a quiet thing um, you know it's, it's very visible and so often when people uh, get pregnant they then have to go through the ritual humiliation because it, it's already known and the scandal is there and they have to kind of be brought back uh, through the kind of church rituals and that means standing up the front of the church in your sackcloth taking your penance um, and the men do that too so it's not just the women mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the women's body that effectively is the evidence i guess mm-hmm. um so they have these kind of rituals but often the really interesting thing for me who was looking at uh, i have a chapter thinking about these women uh, was how many of them then left the community and they often leave their child there in the community with parents or family and they go away to work now often these were servants anyway so they're already working so this isn't necessarily uh, like them they were going back to jobs maybe not the same job but going back to doing things they were doing but there is that sense of which that they then leave the community often for a few years before they come back and then often they come back and they get married and they bring their child into their home at that point if the child is alive and and they continue to raise it but I, I mean I think that shunning process that process of leaving seems to be necessary maybe even just at a personal level you have so much shame involved that it allows some distance around that from that gossip I guess and mm-hmm. allows you to come back but they have yeah I guess these rituals allow for that reconciliation as well mm-hmm. um you use a very ca- uh, striking phrase charitable hatred uh what do you mean by that what is that yeah, it's a good question. It's actually the book title of a, a work by Alexander Walsham, who is a, an early modern religious historian who's very well known, very famous historian. And she wrote a book called Charitable Hatred. And, and she was talking uh, in the context of toleration. Um, and so often when we hear the word toleration today, we think of it as a positive thing. I tolerate you, my neighbour. And she says, well, no, like toleration was giving people a sort of like it was a grudging kind of okay we'll let you do that and 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 she described it as a form of charitable hatred that um you you could not embrace sin because that was immoral so you had to hate that behavior but also you had to be loving and um because hatred is not a, a moral kind of emotion and so therefore you had to kind of offer a loving kind of grudging acceptance and and she kind of describes that whole context as charitable hatred and i think you see that in uh, I think that's part of Caritas and I think it is the way that they deal with people who are not behaving well or according to their rules um, that they, they it's not like they, they don't execute them you know they, they, they have they allow them space in the community but they don't uh, they don't embrace or encourage that behavior so it's a kind of a loving hatred a loving kind of mm-hmm. that's, 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 that's very nice it, it makes um, a lot of American historians would would be would, would do well to understand that because um, it makes uh, Washington, uh, George Washington writes a very famous letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, saying we no longer speak of toleration, of mere toleration, but we speak of freedom of conscience. And of course, mm-hmm. he's speaking out of that earlier ethic. He understands earlier ethic better than we do when of toleration mm-hmm. being you know charitable hatred uh, mm-hmm. rather than freedom of conscience. Um, yeah. What... Um, you say privacy was a choice in early modern Scotland. What do you mean by that? Well, because it's, it's, a, very, real, it's right? a very strange thing for a 21st century person to hear, right? I mean, that's yeah. like yellow has weight. Privacy is a choice. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we, I think we, our heads, we might think it's relatively easy to have privacy if you live on your own or in a, 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 even a modern home, often people have their own bedroom or a sense of their own space. But this is not true, right? Especially for poor people in early modern Scotland. They are living in houses with multiple people in one room. They share beds. They uh, like they, they share clothing. They, they, there's a kind of sense of which you do not have an awful lot of space for yourself. Um, and But people want privacy, right? People want to have sex without people noticing that. They want to have private conversations that go unheard. Um, and so how do you do that in communities where the, the neighbours are always watching and also the neighbours are literally physically always there because um, you, you are sharing such those kind of spaces? And and so what I suggest is that they actually exercise the choice not to see certain things um, unless it becomes particularly problematic. And I think that is part of um, how you maintain, I guess, peace and, and I guess, order in this society because it's not easy to live that that moral code for living is very hard and it's, it's hard work and people are always breaching it and so if every single time somebody in your community did something wrong everybody stood and went oh look you're bad <sighs> then it would become very difficult right to live in that society but also like very difficult to manage I mean in a practical sense and it would not lead to a peaceful society which is a, a very important part of that so instead they, they choose to not see things, uh, to ignore them, to not talk about them, even when they know they've happened. So this and gives then, us back to the the wife beating. Yes, exactly. So so the, and and then so that's a really interesting question. I think is when does it when do they choose to stop making it private and to come into the public? And so sometimes that's about where it happens. So that's why I think if a woman runs into the street mm-hmm. and shouts, you know, I need help, people will help because she has chosen to take that out of the private and to make it into a public issue. Um, mm-hmm. Similarly, they have a sense of crimes like real crimes, like murder and things like that. They 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 have to be public issues. Nobody is is kind of sitting around going, yeah, let's pretend we didn't notice the murder, right? Um, but some things like infanticide, that's maybe a little bit more blurry. So Scottish people generally are very anti-infanticide, as, as are we all. So that usually <laughs> does get reported. <laughs> but within the actual families, it doesn't always... I mean, because most family members would report a murder, right? But they like many families are complicit in hiding uh, dead babies. Um, and so that's also an interesting one where they definitely think that's a morally murky space. Um, so there's a sense of which, I guess, that they're making kind of ethical judgments about when something becomes important enough to come forth and be made public. And then crime, especially criminal records, which we're using, is interesting because often if some a big crime happens, all the small stuff comes out as well. And that's really interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like they went, hang on, you need to understand that this did not happen in a vacuum. And so we're going to bring out this whole moral context to help you understand how this how this event happened, but how this should be interpreted. Um, and then that's where you get all the gossip and all the interesting details about people's lives and the naughtiness and all that fun stuff. And, and thank um, God for but, court records. I mean, that's and, exactly. and, and, and thank God for that sort of that that weird thing where everything comes out in an 18th century trial. You know, it's other, yeah. it's uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very useful. But the really interesting thing is why didn't it come out before, right? It's about the fact that a lot of, and some people even say that. They're like, I have never told anybody this before. And historians have always been very, I've seen that as a trope. They think that it's a lie, right? That they obviously did talk mm-hmm. about it. And maybe they did. Um, but I actually also think that, that they knew that they shouldn't be. And if they were talking about it to other people, they were doing it within a, dis- a context of discretion where they didn't think it would travel further and become public knowledge. So I think they, they are they are telling a, a truth of an, in a sense of saying, we have not made this public. Here's what I love about the, your book is that you might be wrong. 
But you're the first person to come up with an explanation for a trope that I and many others have noticed over and over again and said, huh? And and it's much, I, I, I find your explanation more persuasive than my saying to myself, well, it's just, it's a trope. It makes no difference. You know, it's, yeah. you know. Um, I think tropes actually are really important and historians should not ignore them, right? This is the key lesson from anything I write, is that tropes are there for reasons and if you understand the reason, and that's not the same as saying that a trope is literally true, it's saying it right. has a function in that culture and we have to understand what it does in that culture right. and that's yeah, important. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, this is connected to sort of privacy. What is loneliness in a society like this? Um, how can a self be lonely in a society when the people that you're studying, uh, you have to be, you have to be extraordinarily wealthy to be alone in 18th century, in the 18th century world. Um, you really do. And even very wealthy people are surrounded by servants in a way that most of us today would find deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, so. absolutely. I, I So with, in the book, I talk about loneliness in the context of vagrants and people who are banished or excluded uh, from these communities. And, and so that is part of the disciplinary apparatus. So we should be exercising our charitable hatred, our toleration towards those in our community as best we can. But when their behaviour gets to a certain point, then they are excluded. And banishment is a very common punishment. People are banished from towns, so they're not being banished from the country. They're just banished from the local in our area. People are banished from the country and often don't quite get around to leaving. Um, people are banished uh, like in all sorts of contexts. And then there's shunning. That's where you refuse to give hospitality to people. That's often, if you think your neighbour's very sinful, you wouldn't invite them in. Um, and so there's all these rituals of exclusion. And these rituals of exclusion are really kind of, I think, psychologically important um, because this is a community of love. And so that they, they believe that, that things like hospitality is a very important value. They show it to vagrants and poor people all the time. Um, they, they really try not to turn people away, I guess, if, they, if they're if they in need, because it's, it's a very important part of, of charity for them. And and so there's kind of this sense of that they have this openness and this sort of embracing of, of others and others in their community. So when they choose to shun or banish you, that's a big deal. And it's a big deal because you are suddenly excluded from all those networks of love and support and friendship and places to sleep and eat when you're hungry. It makes you, uh, puts you into a place of insecurity. Physically, it can literally move you outside the town. So you're, mm. you're living in areas in the between, in the liminal spaces, historians would say. Um, so so I've, I kind of suggested that loneliness in these communities was that sense of being ex excluded from these loving communities and how what it was to live uh, in those kind of marginal sites and spaces on the outside of community. And, it, it, yeah. gives, it gives me a different perspective on Scots-Irish immigration. It gives me a different perspective on immigration, period. Mm -hmm. um, so if you like the best known text might be, say, Boswell's Journey to the Western Isles. Uh, where he describes watching the ships leave from, I think, Sky uh, for the from Americas and this deep emotional thing. Now, you can look at it. People have looked at, oh, this is like the breaking up of, they've looked at it with like sort of tartan uh, haze, through a tartan haze and seen that this is the breaking up of clans. This is the breaking up of, of kinship solidarity. But you would say this is also the breaking up of caritas. This is mm. a self, this is self banishment. This is mm -hmm. psychologically emotionally spiritually 
social. This is hard. This is this is nausea. This is no wonder why they're crying. No wonder why this is so hard. Yeah, and, and also because they're doing it uh, by choice in some ways. I, I'm not all not all of them are doing it as a choice, but you know some of them are. And so you're also actively choosing to exclude yourself from this thing that you value so much. And these people exactly. that you know that you you love and hold and and that all the senses that that means. Um, and so I think it is, and 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 all the risk that's involved. And then we see when people settle that they then try to reform these communities, and I think that's quite interesting as well mm-hmm. that they try to recreate that sense of uh, of love and neighbourliness. And migrant communities often kind of I think flock together partly because they are trying to recreate that sense of, of community uh, in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, so, are there any now that you've you've completed this book, it's published and. It's wonderful, and you probably you know it's not your first book, but nonetheless, like any it, when when it came to you uh, the, in the box, you probably took it and held it and looked at it, sort of you know, uh, yeah, stroked exactly, kind of that, admired the cover, uh, the font. Um, but now there maybe you have some second thoughts, and you're thinking, gosh, I wish I had talked about this area of Scottish society. Is there is there something else that you wish that you had included? that maybe got cut because of an editor who just didn't understand or maybe something that, you know, you didn't feel was quite out ready to take out of the oven. It's not uh, that I think, I think the book, I think ultimately I was happy with what I chose to keep in the book, but I think like any, like these sources are amazing. You can do lots of things with them. And I think that there's lots of scope really to get into the, to the weeds you know like I think in some ways a lot of chapters in this book could have been books by themselves right and so I kind of think that there's that sense of which that you could start to uh, really open up these case studies more and think about them in different contexts and so I I think yes that definitely can be done I'm not sure if I want to do that (laughs) the thing that (laughs) that I I, I am interested in doing more is my which is my new project is I have a guy he's an 18th century banker and he um, has 30 illegitimate children he's born in 1750 just 30 and to many different women so one woman has eight children to him so there are clustering but they they, he has lots of (laughs) Yeah, women as well, and and he. So this is he a complex was, social life. That's what we would describe it. Yeah. yeah. Also, like, when did he have the time? Right, like, so he's a banker, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so for he saw so he didn't have a, a traditional religious belief. I think we'd call him a deist. He believed in there was a higher power, but not necessarily the Christian God as was understood. And so, but he's he lives in Edinburgh, right? He lives in the heartland of this moral kind of high ground. He keeps all this very secret. We know because we have his letters and his records and his finances um, that when we can unpack all this stuff. And when he dies, a lot of it comes out. But um, he really keeps all of the, all of these children all of these families quite secret for like uh, most of his life it doesn't have he's very respectable very middle class he sits on lots of boards and societies that we would expect a man of that social class to sit on so um there is this kind of sense that he, he clearly does a good job of not advertising that behavior i would say that he's probably part of a group of small men who do behave like that who maybe gave themselves community in new ways um so we know that there's a few other men of his generation who in scott edinburgh who have similar uh, illegitimate families james bodwell being a very famous example kind of person he was he was friends with james bodwell so um 
So I want to know about them, right? Like, why is it they managed to separate themselves from that mental framework, from that community? And why did that allow them to then not only engage in sinful behaviours, which I think a lot of people did, but to kind of actually justify that to themselves? And I think that's why the 30 illegitimate children matters. Lots of people have one or two illegitimate children because, you know, life is complicated, we make mistakes. It's to, to do, to have that many children over, I think, about a 30 year period is, you know, the in terms of the age gaps between these kids, um, it's not somebody making a mistake. It's somebody making a choice to live outside of those rules, whilst also in some ways conforming because he he's an elite man who does not get excluded. He's not he doesn't see himself as bohemian. He goes to church because it's you know he thinks that that's important. So the, the, the kind of I guess we think of him as a hypocrite um, in many ways, but I'm not sure that's fair to him um, I, I, or. I don't think that he would see himself in that way. I think he found ways to justify that behaviour to himself. How did he do that in that context? How do you break your socialisation, your training, your learning, your moral code that everybody else is doing around you and do something very different? Um, and, and I think there are lots of reasons for that. But that's kind of what I want to think about next is when people absolutely exclude themselves from that and how they do that and what difference that makes for us. Because I think if we want to know why does this, this kind of society end? Because um, yeah. we don't behave like that in Scotland anymore. You know, people like yeah. him, I think, offer us uh, an opening point into when things start to change and why they change. So, let's just start to wrap this up. Um, what's your your case? For, what does Caritas help us? This concept help us understand about early modern Europe? That because uh, you, you certainly think it helps us understand early modern Europe in a way that we might not otherwise understand it? And how how is that? I think it brings together a lot of things that we've discussed separately. So like I was saying, we talked about peacekeeping. There's a reasonably nice literature on that idea. Mm -hmm. we've, we have talked about love and also especially in families and romantic relationships. Um, we have talked way. about credit and, and you know credit relationships and the, um, the, the importance of that and what I think it kind of does is saying all these things that we are thinking about in separate contexts that we understand uh, are part of, of how these people kind of negotiate their worlds are actually not distinct they are part of a, a kind of a one sort of logical pattern about how you should behave in the world and they inform each other and that actually if we think about them through this ethic of Caritas we can see how their kind of the logic of their world comes together and then these things might actually make sense because sometimes I think we don't always see how they fit together and I think it helps us give a kind of an explanation for why they, they do the strange things that they do and how they all kind of add up. Uh, you say that there are fragments of this emotional world that that still remain with us today. What are they? Yeah, so little things like um, that. drinking together. I mean, that sounds a bit silly and it's increasingly controversial when it, like in a in an institutional context at work because we have, we are now much more diverse and people don't drink and those kind of things. But there's a, a, I think there remains, especially in the British psyche, that strong sense that, that drinking together is a social ritual that kind of creates peace. And, and, and you see that, that, that there's an idea that definitely carries on. Um, but I think it's also, we can see it in our kind of, same in feminist politics, for example, that commitment to ideas like kindness, the idea that this can be a politics and a way of behaving and that we, we aren't all kind of anonymous, individualistic actors, but that we are part of a community and that those effective dimensions are can remain part of our, also part of our political tradition and that we still have a language. I think a lot of that continues, it's been shaped and reshaped for a modern form, but you can see the kind of those logics 
continuing in those arguments. Well, in the show notes, we'll have to uh, put a link to Tom Holland, our conversation with Tom Holland on his book, Dominion, uh, which he kind of is is saying this without having read your book uh, or, <laughs> or, or thinking about the ways in this, which is this actually, he, he's connecting to you in, in a way. Um, I, I want to wrap up. This is, a, this is a series. This is the 10th book. There are nine other books in this uh, series, Emotions in History for Oxford University Press. Um, could you describe what's the state of the field in the history of emotions, um, which most listeners and maybe even me, yes, including me, were unaware that things had, that there was a history of the emotions or certainly that it had, there was it was so it was going so strong? Yeah, I think it's definitely at, at, I wouldn't like to say a peak because that suggests it's going to start coming down, but we're definitely <laughs> at, at a high point at this moment. Um, so the history of emotions, there's a long, we could, we could talk about that in lots of historical contexts, but I guess in the last 20 years, there's suddenly been a, a big investment in, in the history of emotions. And I think we're starting to see it really come into its own at the moment. Um, and that's partly been about financial investments. In Australia, we had uh, the ARC centre as a, a, a financial investment by the government, but you have a centre in London and one in Germany. In the US, we have the Society for the History of Emotions. Um, so I guess we're kind of coalescing and people are talking to each other. And that's when academics get excited is when you have enough people who uh, care about a topic and then and it's kind of just building energy at this moment and I think we saw early modern uh, work has been very very uh, it's been very important there we're now seeing it kind of move out into the rest of the world but also I think much more modern histories are being produced as well um, and I think that's possibly where we're going to see a lot more work is in that modern so what why 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 has this happened <laughs> have you have you been have you reflected like a historian on the why this moment for this history of the emotions there's a there's a way in which to some it would seem this is very unleashed. This is like a blast from the past. Um, you know, you'll be talking about climate and the emotions next. But um, what's 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 the reason for this? Well, I think we live in a particularly emotional moment, right? Like um, people sometimes describe this as the age of anger, like thinking about, say, Trump and, and, and that, all that discontent. But even uh, like earlier, like Obama ran on a campaign of hope. There is a kind of sense that uh, right oh, or when you watch the news, right, you used to be asked, um, what do you think about these events? You know, on the public street with the public, they'd give you a microphone. Yeah. What do you think about this? Now they say, how do you feel about this? Right. Um, and and you, is that- You just of, scored the winning goal. How do you feel? Yeah, like not yeah. how you did it but you know yeah. how do you feel yeah and so we as a culture are, are, are putting or certainly in the anglophone world i think are putting an emphasis on feeling as an important value and way of interpreting things and, and that that should be given accord and also i think i would suggest is also an ethic of its own that if you feel suffering if you feel hurt then we actually think that should be redressed right we wouldn't go well you should just suck it up really yeah, you know, mm. that would now be considered quite callous and quite a hard thing. I imagine that actually that wouldn't necessarily have been the case in the mid twentieth century. People would have said, you know, well, yes, life is hard. You have to just get on with it. So there's a sense of which we give a value to emotional uh, expression uh, in our culture more widely, and I think that historians of emotion have recognised that uh, around them and went, huh, wonder what this <laughs> means, <laughs> and, and then wanted to provide that historical context. Uh, for our emotional moment, I guess. Mm -hmm. So you, you've described your own work, um, what you want to do next in this history of emotions. Are you aware, what, what are some other in, in directions in the history of emotions that, you know, that you, that you wish that you could assign as a dissertation as a topic or that, that you know, <laughs> a research, uh, nothing is better than research topics for other people. 
Um, well, oh, yeah. you know, that's always enjoyable. I, I really don't want to do this, but you go ahead and do that. What, what are some other things that sort of like, they must pop up in front of you like every other day or, or more or more often than that? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a very hard question. There's so many. Yeah, Actually, I one thing I would just like, I, I can't supervise this topic, but I would like some more on Africa and African yeah. emotions um, because I, I'm, I've been writing a lot of these kind of survey pieces of the field as we do, and it keeps coming up again. I mean, there are absolutely some African historians of emotion, but they're a relative minority. And of course, historians can't do everything. So they, they do their thing and that's really great. But there's like the whole rest of the continent and the whole rest of history from, you know, um, and I kind of think that I definitely think that that's an area where we need just more work in that space on that geographical space. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I kind of, I think that we, um, yeah, I think there's also kind of, crossovers into other types of histories so uh funnily enough the history of sexuality you'd think it's a very obvious kind of uh connection but i i don't know that that has been in conversation as much as it could have that would be one i could supervise so anybody wants that dissertation <laughs> talk to me um, yeah so I, I kind of think there's the ways of thinking about topics that we already do and how emotions might kind of help us have new conversations with, with that material and with those ideas well, my guest today has been Katie Barkley. She's the author of Caritas, Neighborly Love and the Early Modern Self. And she's also the Deputy Director of the ARC Center of Excellence in the History of Emotions at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And she's ready to supervise your thesis on history of emotions and sexuality. Katie, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. It was fun. I want to take a moment to introduce Historically Thinking listeners to another podcast, one I've thoroughly enjoyed since it first appeared. It's The Age of Jackson, hosted by Daniel N. Galata, whom listeners will recognize from an interview I did with him earlier this spring. Each week, Daniel talks with authors of the latest books that focus on American politics, culture, religion, and just about everything else in the first 50 years of the 19th century. Lately, Daniel has featured conversations on the two Shawnee brothers who shaped American history, fear of Mormons and Jacksonian politics, and sexual tumult in 19th century America. Always engaging and interesting, The Age of Jackson is, I think, one of the best history podcasts out there. If you enjoy historically thinking, but think that sometimes I'm not doing enough podcasts on American history, particularly 19th century American history, and you know who you are, then check out The Age of Jackson, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Brunat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.